Well, this past summer, my boys and a lot of their friends were outside playing football and they did this many days this summer. They would go outside and, and play football. And when I got home, they would ask me to come outside and be all-time quarterback. And um, I'm just telling you, Bowman's got nothing on me, all right? I can, I can sling the pigskin, okay? So we're out there playing football and uh, Coben, my son, is on one side and uh, Levi, my other son's on the other team and I'm the all-time quarterback. And at this moment, uh, my son Coben's team is on offense. So it's him and like some of the neighborhood kids that are playing. And while we're playing and before we're about to hike the ball and they're about to go out for their passes, uh, my son Levi starts just chirping and trash talking my son Coben because Coben had just missed a pass and because Levi was guarding him and trying to show how you know much bigger and tougher and more dominant he is, even though he's like three years older and much bigger and stronger and, and more athletic and all those kinds of things. He, he thought it would be cool to like trash talk his younger brother. And boys do that a lot, right? I mean, I still, me and Mark and Brandon, my friend, like we still trash talk. Like boys just talk noise for the rest of their life. They're, we're just, we're dumb like that, okay? We never stop chirping talking noise, talking trash. And so Levi's doing this to, to Coben. And you would think because Levi's so much bigger and stronger and faster and all those kinds of things, just because he's older, that him talking trash to Coben would have totally like discouraged Coben. But that didn't happen at all. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, Coben just laughed at him, was laughing in his face and just walking up and down the sideline, just doing this. You can keep talking, but it's not working. It's not affecting me. You're not making me feel worse. You're losing the game. I'm gonna dominate you. Like he just started talking right back. Like he was coming back. Like it didn't bother him at all that Levi was talking all this noise, talking all this trash. Coben gave it right back to him. And I was totally amazed by this, that he would talk trash to someone who's bigger, older, stronger, better at football, all those kinds of things. I was amazed by it. And I started thinking, I, started, I was looking at him and I was so amazed. I was like, I got, I got to figure out like what's going on here. I, we, whatever he's drinking, we need to drink some of it, okay? Whatever he's got, we need. And it's definitely true as followers of Jesus. We need some of what Coben's got. And so in this series, that's really what we're talking about is I've just kind of broken down like this interaction between my two sons and why Coben was so confident, why he was so bold and why the trash talk of his older brother didn't totally discourage him or distract him from the game. And so in this series, Here's what we're talking about. And here's why we're talking about it. The Bible says that Satan is the great accuser and he will accuse you of things and he will remind you of things that have happened in your past. And sometimes if, if you're like me, the way that works is Satan just begins to kind of reel this trailer in your mind, like almost like a movie trailer of all the things that you've done wrong. Like he'll remind you of all the things that you've done in your past and he will begin to accuse you of things that happened in your past and you will experience the shame and the discouragement that can come from that. You know, people, if you haven't already experienced it in this life, people will try to tear you down to make themselves feel better because they're insecure, maybe because they, you're, they're threatened by you, maybe because it makes them feel better about themselves, like to tear you down. They will make fun of you. They will talk trash. They will try to discourage you. They will try to distract you from who God has called you to be and from what God is calling you to do. And so sometimes it's Satan, sometimes it's other people. 
will throw shame your way, discouragement your way, distraction your way. And how do we respond? What do we do when we're faced with shame and distraction and discouragement, whether that be from Satan or others? What do we do? How do we respond? Well, I think we respond like Coben responded in that moment. We respond with clap back. Like we clap back to the devil. We clap back to what people are telling us and making us feel. That's how we come back from shame, discouragement, and distraction. Now, I'm sure all of you know what a clapback is and what that means, okay? I'm, I'm just guessing most of you do. But in case, like just in case you're like the one that's like not on social media or something like that, and praise God for you, you're probably a healthier person all around than all the rest of us, including myself. But in case you're the person that's not on social media and doesn't know, this is what Urban Dictionary says a comeback or a clapback is. It's a comeback, and then I love this, watch this, most likely pumped with attitude and sass. That's what Urban Dictionary says a clapback is. Now, it also says it's a lot of other things, but I can't tell you those things here, and I can't give you all those definitions. But this is a definition I could give you. And so that's a clapback. And I think we need some of what Coben has in that moment, what he had in that moment, what he was drinking, what he was doing. In that. We need some of that same confidence. And the Bible says it's actually, it's in you. You may not have known it. You may not have realized it, but that confidence, that boldness, it's actually in you already as a follower of Jesus. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of timidity, one that shrinks back, but he's given us a, a spirit of power and boldness, one that bows up. And so how do we do that? Well, I would submit to you tonight, we come back from shame and discouragement and distraction with a clap back. And to follow along with us, to take notes and have the verses there and for you and all that kind of stuff, it's all at RaiderChurch.com. Just select message notes and you can follow along with us. There's fill in the blanks uh, for you to fill in the blank with on your phone and it tells you if you got the answer right or wrong or not. And then you can email it to yourself at the end. But it's awesome. So do the fill in the blank notes or if you're old school, there's some people up here with pads and pens and stuff. That's, that's not me, but if that's you, that's, that's great. Take notes, follow along with us as we go. But here's the first clap back, all right? Here's the first clap back. I know who I am. When Satan throws shame, distraction, or discouragement your way, when other people in your life are throwing shame, distraction, discouragement your way, you clap back with, I know who I am. I know who I am. You see, here's the thing. For Coben to clap back the way that he did in that moment, after just dropping a pass, meant that his identity wasn't wrapped up in the game. And many of us, our identities are wrapped up in the game. And the game for you could be school. It could be grades. It could be your job. It could be your finances. It could be your car. It could be where you live. It could be your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be a lot of different things, but Coben's identity wasn't wrapped up in the game. So he was able to respond. He was able to clap back. He was able to come back and not be destroyed by what his brother was throwing his way. And some of you, your identity, who you are is wrapped up in the game. And the game is different for all of us. And many of us don't really realize who we are. 
Some of us have known and we need to be reminded tonight of who we are. But here's where we don't go to find out who we are. We, we don't go like away for a day and center myself and find myself. That's not how I get to know like who I am. Other people aren't going to be the source of truth for who I am. I'm not relying on other people to tell me who I am or, or to define who I am. No, for the Christian, the follower of Jesus, we find out who we are by turning to God's word. That's the truth. We are who God says we are, not who Satan says we are and not who other people say we are. We are who God says we are. You're not even who you say you are. Because sometimes we begin to lie to ourselves and buy into the culture and what the culture says about who we are. Sometimes we buy into what the culture says about finding out who we are. And so we try to center ourselves and harness ourselves and find ourselves and then celebrate ourselves after we find that. And that's not what the Bible says to do. That's not how we find out who we are. We are who God says that we are. So, so who are we? Well, four quick things. Number one, you were created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God. And this is true for every single person on the face of the planet. Christian, non-Christian, regardless of what religion someone professes, the Bible says every person is created in the image of God. This is true for every person who's ever lived and every person who will ever live on the face of the planet. The Bible says they are created in the image of God. Where do we get this? Genesis chapter one, watch this, verse 26. Then God said, watch what God says, let us First reference to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God exists in community. We call it the doctrine of the Godhead, the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. They're three persons, but they exist as one God. And so we call that the doctrine of the Trinity or the Godhead, that God is one, but three. He's three persons, but one God. This is the very first reference to it in all the Bible. God actually referring to himself in the plural. Let us... He says, make human beings in our, there's a, there it is again, plural, in our image to be like us. So God says in the very beginning, he makes human beings in his image. And so the Bible says the image of God, they were created. So what does this mean? What does this idea of being created in the image of God means? Well, the Hebrew idea, and I love this, the Hebrew idea that's being used here is a stamp. You see, when a coin is made, there's an image on the stamp and the stamp comes down and presses and stamps the coin. And the same image that's on the stamp is left on the coin. And so when the Bible says here that you were made in the image of God, what the Bible is saying is that you have a divine stamp. You have a divine stamp of God. And so you were created to be like him. Now we're not him. We are not God. He is the creator. We are the created. So he is different than us in some ways in that he is infinite and eternal and completely holy and righteous. There, there's a lot of things that, about him, that are about God that are not true of us, but there are many things about God that he has stamped on us. And so we are like him in some ways and that we are personal, that we love, that we have a standard of right and wrong inside of us. Like there's a morality, the moral law, the Bible says has been like written on our hearts and on our minds. 
And so all over the world, we all have this kind of standard of right and wrong that it's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to, to rape. It's always wrong to steal. It's because we have this moral law that's written on our hearts. So we've been created like God in many ways. You have a divine stamp. And when you read the rest of the Bible, specifically in Psalm 139, here's what we find out. That this begins, this stamp, at the moment of conception. Now, there's a difference, and I hope you figured this out, and if you haven't, you will soon. There's a difference between conception and birth, right? Conception is the moment when an egg is fertilized in a woman's womb. And the Bible says from the moment of conception, it actually uses that word, especially in Psalm 139, from the moment of conception, at that moment, it says in Psalm 139, watch this, that God is forming that child in his mother's womb, that God is watching this child grow and form in his mother's womb, that God is planning out all the days of this child's life from the moment of conception, that fertilized egg, that baby, that human being is made in the image of God, has a divine stamp. Regardless of the circumstances by which that came about, at the moment of conception, every human being has a divine stamp, is made in the image of God. Now this world will tell us something different, but we don't trust what the world says. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 12 to, to don't conform yourself to the pattern of this world, to the ideas of this world, to the standards of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. God thinks differently than we do. In fact, the Bible, God says, you make a mistake when you think that I think like you do. I don't. My ways and my thoughts are not your ways and your thoughts. And so as the created, we're to conform our ways and our thoughts to the creator. So every human being on the face of the planet has been created in the image of God. That goes for the people that annoy you, that you don't like. That person who hurt you, they were created in the image of God. That person that you hurt, that you talk about, that you gossip about, they were made in the image of God. And so they have by their very nature, infinite value and worth in the eyes of God, infinite value and worth. You were created every single one of you. It doesn't matter what your parents have told you, what your friends have told you, what Satan has whispered into your ear, you have infinite value and worth in the eyes of God. That's who God says you are. So who are you? You were created in the image of God. That, that's who you are. Secondly, you are a child of God. That's who you are. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a child of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. Now, what we're talking about right now, and really for the rest of our time together, 
These things are only true of people who've made the decision to follow Jesus, to give their lives to Jesus, to trust in Jesus' payment of their fine through his death on the cross. These things are not true for you if you've not given your life to Jesus. But if you have given your life to Jesus, who are you? You're, you're a child of God. That's who you are. Paul says this, this in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse five, he said this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. So before the world was ever formed, this is what Paul is saying here, before the foundations of the world, before let there be light in Genesis one, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family through Jesus. Now you might be thinking, so God knew we were going to mess up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God knew we were going to mess up because God created us for a love relationship with himself. It meant that he had to give us an option. He had to give us a choice to love him and follow him and worship him or not, or it wouldn't have been real love. And so God placed a tree in the garden that he told them to not touch. You could eat from every other tree, but from this tree, you, you can't eat of it. And when they ate of that tree, sin entered the world, rebellion entered the world. And the Bible says every one of us since then have been born into sin and sin. The Bible says in Genesis three, God said sin has a curse and the curse of sin is death. And so our bodies, this world have been cursed by sin and the curse of sin is death. So our bodies are dead, dying and decaying. This world is dying and decaying. The curse of sin being death means that we are separated from God and the life that God had originally designed us to live in fellowship and connection with him. So sin enters the world and we're separated from God. And Romans five actually says we're, we're enemies of God. Ephesians two, Paul says that by our very nature, we're objects of the wrath of God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. But God decided in advance because of his great love for his creation to rescue us from our sin by adopting us into his family, by bringing us to himself. We were far away. We were separated from God because of our sin, but through Jesus, and you'll see here in just a second how this is made possible. God brings us back to himself. He draws us back to himself and he's wooing every single one of us back to himself through Jesus. And when you make that decision to follow Jesus, you were an orphan in your sin headed to hell. You're adopted into the family of God. You actually become a child of God because you're adopted into his family. And now you've got this new spiritual family. It's called the church. You see, don't ever let yourself start saying, well, me and Jesus are cool, but I don't, I don't like the church. I don't like those people. They, they get on my nerves. They hurt me. They offend, you know, we don't really get to say that. Sure. We're all messed up. We're all jacked up. And so we're going to hurt each other's feelings. But just like in a real family, you don't get to say, hey, you know what? I don't, I don't need you guys anymore. I don't want to be around you guys. That's not the way a real family works. That's not the way our spiritual family works. You were adopted into a new family, the family of God. And so we have a new father. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're adopted into this family and he does this through Jesus Christ. He brings us close. We were far away. He brings us close. Watch this. This is, this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure to do this. It gave God great pleasure 
to bring us into his family, to adopt us into his family, to make us his kids. And so Paul says, so we praise God for his glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. We praise God for his grace because we didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't work for it. We don't get to try harder or do better. No, it's by God's grace. He gives us what we don't deserve, what we didn't earn, what we didn't work for. And so we praise God for his grace that he's poured out on us. God is so rich in kindness and grace that he watched this. He purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sin. You're adopted into the family of God through Jesus because it's Jesus who shed his blood on the cross so that your sin could be forgiven. He purchased your freedom with the blood of his one and only son, Jesus. What does that mean to purchase your freedom? Freedom from what? Well, the Bible says the curse of sin is death. Death is eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Ephesians 2 actually says that until we become followers of Jesus, we're actually following our master, the devil. And so when Paul says that through Jesus, he purchased our freedom, that it was the blood of Jesus that set us free from sin and the curse of sin, which is death, eternity separated from God and hell. And he set us free from our master, the devil. You were adopted into the family of God. You became a child of God when God purchased your freedom through the blood of his son. And when you trust, the Bible says in Romans 3, in God's offering his gift of salvation through the sacrifice of his son. The Bible says you're, you're made right with God. You can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. You don't have to wonder about it. You can be 100% sure because of what Jesus has done for you because his blood was shed and your freedom was purchased. You're free. It's done. It's finished. So who are you? Follower of Jesus, you're a child of God. That's who you are now. But it doesn't stop there. Third, watch this. You're now the temple of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are the temple of the living God. Now in the old covenant that we see in the Old Testament, God's presence resided in the place called the tabernacle. God had Moses and Israel set up this tabernacle and it's the place where his glory, his presence would, would come down and reside. And so when they were traveling through the desert, they would set up the tabernacle and all of a sudden they would see this fiery cloud from heaven, come down from heaven and fill the tabernacle. And that's where the high priest or Moses would go and meet with God. That's where God's presence was. And the Bible says that when Moses would go into this tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, all of Israel would come out of their tents and they would bow down and they would worship as God came down and met with a man. But it was this fiery, cloudy presence that would come down from heaven and fill the tabernacle. And then when the temple came along under Solomon, it was the more permanent tabernacle. Again, they dedicate this temple to be the place of God where God would meet with men here on earth. 
And again, they dedicate the temple and the presence of God comes down in this fiery cloud and it fills the temple. And this time it says that God so filled this temple, his presence, his thick, fiery presence, so filled the temple that no one could go in and no one even wanted to go in because they were afraid they would die. And so imagine being a Jew, a Hebrew, knowing that in the old covenant, the temple of God was the tabernacle or the temple. But there's this new covenant that God begins to talk about. And in this new covenant, God says, I'm going to place my spirit inside of you. In other words, I'm going to place my fiery presence inside of you. And I will be living and indwelling inside of you and moving you to follow me with all of your heart and convicting you of sin because it's called the Holy Spirit. And so it gives us a hatred for sin and a love for holiness and the power to turn from sin and to pursue holiness. And then imagine being that Hebrew, being a Jew, being Israel and hearing Paul now say this in 1 Corinthians 6, watch what he says. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and is given to you by God? Paul says, follower of Jesus, who are you? You are the temple of the living God. God's spirit, his Holy Spirit is living and burning inside of you and giving you power and boldness and a passion for holiness and a hatred for sin and the ability, the supernatural power to turn from your sin and to pursue holiness. That's what the Holy Spirit does inside of you. It convicts you of sin, but it doesn't just leave you there. It gives you the power to change It gives you the ability to do things you could never do on your own. It changes your mind and your desires and your heart about things. And now you love things like worship or or reading your Bible or praying or giving. You love these things now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is living and dwelling inside of you and moving you to pursue these things in a way you never did before. That's the new covenant. And Paul says in the new covenant, we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code where there's a checklist and there's this duty to perform that's pressed on us from the outside. No, that was the law. Now we serve in the new way of the spirit where God moves us from the inside out to pursue him and love him and worship him and follow him. You, follower of Jesus, are the temple of the living God. That's who you are. And then finally, Who are you? Well, your home is with God. You are a citizen of heaven. That's who you are now. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. Your home is with God. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see this kind of hall of fame of all these people that God used and did incredible things through all throughout the Old Testament. And what's funny about all these people is they're like, they're just as messed up, if not more so than every single one of us, yet God used them in mighty, powerful ways. But in Hebrews 11, we see this hall of fame of all these great people of faith. And the question begins to be asked in Hebrews 11, why? How did these people live with such great faith? 
Why did they continue to have faith in God? Even when they didn't see the answers to some of their prayers, the answers to the promises of God. Why? How did they live by faith? And Hebrews 11 answers that question. Here was the way they thought. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously people who say such things, watch this, are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place. Watch this, a heavenly homeland. That's what they were looking forward to was this heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. Follower of Jesus, your home is in heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. You might remember Jesus telling the disciples in John chapter 14, they're nervous because he's saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. I'm going. And they're like, no, no, no. It's better for you to stay here. And he's like, no, no, no. Jesus is like, I've got to go. And when I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be also with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. God is preparing a city for us. You see, a lot of people think when they die and for all of eternity, they're going to be in heaven. And that sounds boring because the images of heaven we've had are kind of being on a cloud with a harp and a robe. And you're like, I don't want any of that. That sounds boring. I don't want to sing for the rest of my life. Like I love worship. I love singing, but I don't want to do that for all of my life. Like playing a harp with a white robe. Like that just didn't sound very fun. But the Bible says God is making a new city for us to live in. And actually one day it says at the end of revelation, you could read this in revelation chapter 20, 21, 22. It says that one day, all this old stuff, this old earth and everything, it's all going to pass away. And there will be this city come out of heaven. It's called the new Jerusalem. And it's going to come out of heaven down to a new earth. And actually you and I, as followers of Jesus, will live forever in what we call an eternal state here on a new earth, in a new brand new city that God has made for us in new spiritual heavenly bodies, just like Jesus had. So it'll actually be a lot more familiar than maybe you've ever realized. There'll be people here that you know, it'll be a city We'll be here on this earth. We'll have these new bodies. And that's where we'll be for all eternity. And follower of Jesus, that's your home. That's where you're headed. And Hebrews 11 says that these great people of faith were looking forward to this. They weren't worried. They weren't concerned about where they came from, this old earth. They, they, weren't, they weren't tied down to this earth and to what it had to offer. No, this earth is dead and dying and decaying. And one day it's going to be gone and there's going to be a new earth and we're going to live in a new city and we're going to have a new body. And Jesus said, in that day, I will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more mourning, no more weeping, no more sin, no more sickness. No more school shootings, no more war, no more famine, no more earthquakes, tornadoes, all those things. The Bible, Jesus says they're gone forever. He says, I'm making all things new. That's your home. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have so much to look forward to. these great people of faith were looking forward to this new earth, this new city. 
this new body. Because that's your home. They admitted, they agreed, they were foreigners here on this earth. They didn't belong here. Follower of Jesus, you don't belong here. This isn't your home. So don't get too comfortable. Look forward because your home's in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison and you might remember they're, they're in prison and they're singing hymns to God and they're praising God and, and um, everyone starts singing and people are getting saved and even the jailer wants to know how he can be saved and he gives his life to Christ. And, and so it's just, man, revival's just breaking out in this jail cell. Well, the next day, these city officials realize we've put Paul and Silas in prison without a trial. We've beaten them. We've put them in chains without a trial. And so they send word for the police to go to the jailer to let them out of prison. And so the jailer comes and says, hey, city officials realize like this isn't good. They want to let you out. So you're free to go. And Paul says this. No, that's not how this is going to work. That's not what's happening here. <laughs> if you're the jailer, you got to be thinking, what? They said you could leave, like go. And Paul's like, nope, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. You know what you can tell those city officials? They can come here themselves and apologize to us and let us out themselves because we are Roman citizens. You see, Paul's citizenship gave him great confidence. And even when he was in prison, and if most of us were in prison and someone, the jailer comes to let us out, we'd be like, thank you, Jesus. I'm you're like, you're running away from that place. Like you couldn't wait to get out. Paul is set free. He can go. He's in jail. And Paul's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. You tell them to come apologize to me. You come tell them to let us out themselves because we are Roman citizens and you don't treat us like that. You see, Paul knew his citizenship. He knew his rights. He knew the benefits of being a Roman citizen. And it changed everything about his attitude. It changed everything about the way he thought. And so he said, no, we're not going anywhere. They can come here and apologize to us and let us out. Follower of Jesus. You need to understand your citizenship. because it will change everything about your confidence. When you understand your citizenship, it changes the way you think, it changes the way you live, it changes the things that you care about. It changes everything when you know your citizenship. So the first clap back is I know who I am. I was created in the image of God. I'm a child of God. I'm the temple of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's who I am. There's one more clap back and then we're done. And it's this, not only do I know who I am, I know whose I am. I know whose I am. You see, I think one of the reasons Coben was so confident that day, he was willing to clap back, was because he knew his dad was on his team. And as I told you, I'm quite the baller. So he had every reason to be confident in me. But no, that's a great place to be. Confident in your dad and what your dad can do. In Numbers chapter 14, 
Israel's on the verge of going into the promised land. They're right there on the Jordan River and they send out spies into the promised land to kind of scope it out, get a lay of the land, figure out who's over there. And so they send these spies out across the Jordan into the promised land and they check it out. They come back and they begin to spread this negative report. These people are huge. They're, there's more than us. Uh, they're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. And they said this, we're literally like grasshoppers in their eyes. They will crush us. But a couple of people sit up and begin to clap back. They begin to rebuke them for their lack of faith. And one of them was Joshua, Moses' assistant, who would become the leader of Israel after Moses dies. And here's what Joshua said to the people that were spreading the discouraging report. The report that was distracting them from who God had called his people to be and where he had called them to go. Here's what Joshua had to say. They are only helpless prey to us. They, there may be more of them. They may be bigger and stronger than we are, but they are helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. So don't be afraid of them. Translation, my dad is on my team. And so I have nothing to be afraid of. I'm not too confident in myself, but I'm really confident in my dad who's on my team, who's with me. You could say it like this. Joshua was saying, the Lord, our God is ours. He's on our team. He's with us. The Lord, our God, God is ours. God belongs to us, not to them. God belongs to us. And in case you're like, that sounds kind of weird. Like I'm, can God belong to people or to a person? Well, all throughout the old covenant, God says he was choosing a people. He was setting them free from slavery to the Egyptians. He was giving them the promised land. He was giving us the new covenant. He was doing all these things. God says, he says over and over and over again, all throughout the old covenant. He says, I'm doing this because I will be their God and they will be my people. We will belong to each other. We'll be in relationship with one another. So much so that I will belong to them. I will be on their team. I will be on their side. And then the new covenant comes around and Paul says this, watch this. You don't belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So God's desire, his heart has been all throughout the scripture to deliver his people from slavery, to set them free to bless them with a relationship with himself so that we would be his people and he would be our God. And so Paul says it like this in the new covenant, first Corinthians six. Now you don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a, a price. So whose are you? Whose are you follower of Jesus? Who do you belong to? You belong to God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God. He bought you with a price. And the Bible says that God's gift and call are irrevocable. In other words, we would say it like this. 
No returns, no exchanges. The sale is final. It's done. God bought you with the price, follower of Jesus. You belong to him and that sale is final. It's been paid in full. It's final. There's no returns. There's no exchanges. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 1, God was glad to do it. It brought him great pleasure to purchase you out of slavery to sin, to death, to your master, the devil, to purchase you and to set you free, to be in relationship with him. It brought God great pleasure to do it. And so follower of Jesus, you, you belong to God and that will never change. What you have can change day to day. It can change in a second. It can change with a phone call. But whose you are never changes. You've been bought with a price. Now you might be thinking, what was the price? Like, I'd like to know how much God paid for me. That would be good to know because to us, how much we paid for something communicates a lot about that thing's value and worth. Or the amount that you spent on the present for me communicates how much you value, how much you value me in our relationship, right? And so guys, just a heads up, the birthday present, the anniversary present, the Christmas present, the Valentine's present, it better cost you something because if it costs you something, you're communicating how much that person means to you. If it doesn't cost you anything, you're gonna get in trouble, I promise you right now. There's gonna be some words. If your present didn't cost you time, money, thought, effort. That's how we determine if the present is valuable or not, right? How much did it cost? So how much did you cost? How much did God pay for you? You remember what Paul said in Ephesians one? He purchased your freedom with what? The blood of his son. That's how much you're worth to God. The blood of his son. How valuable do you think you are to God if he was willing to pay the blood of his son? Did you know the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that it was the Lord's will to crush him? Like prophesying about the Messiah that would come to take away our sin. It actually says in Isaiah 53 that it's the Lord's will to crush him. Go back and read Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter two, Peter's preaching and he says, this, this has happened by God's set plan and foreknowledge. Like in other words, that this was the plan of God to crush his son on the cross. Did you know that when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus said, father, why have you forsaken me? And we learn that in that moment, when Jesus took on all the sin of the world, second Corinthians five says that he who knew no sin became sin. He took on all of our sin, the wrath of God for our sin. He took it upon himself on the cross. And in that moment, Jesus said, God, my God, God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you turning your back on me? In that moment, in his son's greatest moment of need, when he was suffering, when he was dying, when he was bleeding, the father turned his back on the son. How could that be true? How could God do that to his son? 
How could God turn his back on his son when he's there bleeding and dying? No parent would ever do that. He turned his back on his son. In that moment on the cross, so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on you for all of eternity while you suffered in hell. That's how valuable you are to God. He would turn his back on his one and only son. He purchased your freedom with the blood of his son. Jesus paid the fine for your sin and mine. And the father turned his back on his son so that he wouldn't have to turn his back on all of his kids for all of eternity. That's how valuable you are to God. You are worth the blood of his son. So I know who I am. I know whose I am. I belong to God. And so my challenge for you, my big idea for you tonight is this. You come back from shame, discouragement, distraction. You come back with a clap back when you know who has your back. If you're a follower of Jesus, God turned his back on his son so that he could have your back as a follower of Jesus for all eternity. God has your back. And because God has your back, you can be confident and know who you are and whose you are. So anytime you're Worth is questioned. You're, anytime you question your value, your worth. Next slide there. Clap back with your identity. I know who I am. I know whose I am. A few years ago, my son Coben again was outside playing. Another little boy started to talk trash to Coben. Now, the story I told you earlier happened this summer. This was several years ago. And so they're outside playing and Coben's winning at this game and this kid gets upset. And so he begins to tell my son, Coben, in his anger, nobody loves you. Your parents don't love you. And God doesn't love you. Coben comes running inside our house. He's sobbing, he's crying. He's been completely destroyed by these comments. We think he's hurt. And so we're picking him up, we're holding him. We're saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? We're trying to figure out where he's hurt and what's wrong. And he begins to tell us through tears and through the sobbing what happened. That another little boy had told him that no one loved him, his parents didn't love him, that God didn't love him. He was completely shattered. And so in that moment, the only thing you can do as a parent, as a dad, is begin to tell 
your child how much they mean to you and how much you love them. And so that's what we begin to do. We begin to tell them, Coben, this is how much we love you. And these are all the ways that we've shown you how much that we love you. Like we're trying to show you, like we're not just saying it, like we've actually proved it. And, and this is how you can know and you can be sure and you can be confident that we love you. Coben, these are all the amazing things about you. These are all the special and unique things about who you are, Coben. You are special to us. You're special to God. We love you. God loves you. These are all the ways that we have shown you, that God has shown you he loves you. And Coben, here's how you can know. Here's why you can trust us. Because you belong to us. We know your value and worth like no one else on the face of the planet does. Because you belong to us. You don't belong to that kid. You don't belong to anybody else. You belong to us. And so we as your parents are uniquely positioned to know your value and worth. You may question it, but your parents will never question it, Coben. We know your value and worth because you belong to us. And through the tears and through the sobbing, he began to smile because he was reminded of who he was and whose he was. And there's so much comfort that can be found in that. There's so much reassurance that can be found in remembering who you are and whose you are. Would you pray with me? God, tonight I pray that you would remind every person in this room of who they are and whose they are. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight and they've never given their life to Jesus, I pray that tonight would be their night. They would give their life to Jesus. They would trust in Jesus's payment of their fine. They would stop trying to be a good person Stop trying to do better or try harder because those things will never save us. They'll never set us free. We were set free by the blood of your son. God, thank you for adopting us into your family and drawing us and bringing us close to you. God, would you do that again tonight as we worship, as we sing, as we baptize people here in just a minute? God, would you draw us close to yourself because of what Jesus has already done for us? And God, I pray tonight as we sing, as Paul said, we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us, for his mercy, for his kindness. God, I pray that tonight by the power of your spirit, move in our hearts to worship you and to praise you for your glorious grace, for your rich kindness, for your mercy that you've poured out on us that we do not deserve. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.